So we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians kind of systematically in my own personal times with the Lord. I've been going through a Bible in a year plan. I don't say that to brag because my Bible in a year plan, truth be told, is like Bible in a two and a half year plan. So judge me if you're feeling judgy, but that's how it's going for me. As I'm walking through it, I'm in the book of Ecclesiastes, and to be honest, I can't wait to get out of it. It is a depressing book. Over and over, the writer of Ecclesiastes has one word, one refrain that he says over and over, meaningless, meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. This man had more power, more wealth. He has experienced more pleasure than any one of us will ever in our lives. And he says, look, I've gone through all that. I've experienced all that. Ultimately, it's meaningless. Maybe you can relate to that. Right now, we're getting a project done in our house, and I can be consumed by that, and thinking of vacations coming up, and thinking, oh, I can't wait for all these things, as if there's ultimate purpose in that. As you're chasing possessions, a career, money, trust me, ultimately, there may be some pleasure, but it is meaningless. You can't find that. You can't fill that hole in your soul with those things. And I'm so excited this year. Our theme is on mission. Being on mission with God. If you are not finding your purpose within the mission of God in which he has called you to, I promise you, you will never experience the fullness of the purpose for which you were created. This passage we're in is talking about, man, what does it look like to be on mission with God, to find our purpose in that? Because I think ultimately where fulfillment has to come from. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So you can follow along in your own Bibles. And of course, you can follow along on the screens as I read. It's 2 Corinthians 4, and we pick it up in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is talking about his ministry and he roots his ministry in the mission of God. And we're going to kind of work backwards in the passage. But as I see it here, my hope this morning is we understand God's purposes, Satan's plan, and our part. For all you note takers, that's where we're going. God's purposes, Satan's plan, and our part. And right out of kind of the end of this passage, you see God's purposes in this world. In a very broad sense, what is the purpose of God? Let light shine out of darkness. It is to send out, to spread the light and love of God into this dark world. 
I don't know about you, but I am pretty ready to be done with reading the news. I almost can't take it anymore. How many shootings do we have to hear about? How messed up does the world and the economy, whatever it is, I know it's a little dark on Mother's Day, but do I have to convince you that this is a dark world out there? And what is the mission, the purposes of God? To spread his love and his light into this dark and despairing world. That's the purposes of God. But he doesn't just stop in that kind of general and generic sense. I mean, that sounds nice. What is God's purpose? To send his light and love out there. But he kind of gets more specific in the midst of it too. And as you begin to study this passage, you see that quote there? Let light shine out of darkness. You got to understand in biblical Greek, they didn't have modern day punctuation like we do. They didn't have quotes. What that is, is the translator is kind of tipping us off that, man, he's probably quoting another passage of scripture. But you also have to understand, in this time, they didn't, they didn't feel pressure to have exact quotes like we did, like we do. They would just kind of paraphrase. So it can be kind of tough to wonder what passage is he referencing there? What light is he talking about? If you're familiar with God's word, you may guess, okay, let light shine out of darkness. Is this the beginning of the Bible? Is this Genesis 1-3? There's probably a reference to that. And God said, let there be light. The world is full of darkness, formless and void, and God sends his light out. But the language is close enough. It's hard to know whether that's the light he's talking about or Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has has light shone. Which one is it? What light is he talking about? You know, is it the sun, S-U-N, or is it the sun, S-O-N? In the church world, the fact that those words are pronounced the same have produced a barrage of punny church marquee signs. I don't know if you've ever seen them. You know what I'm talking about? These church signs, right? Powered by the sun and the sun. Solar panels installed. Ow! Right? I think this is a little bit more my favorite here. S-O-N. Sunscreen protects against sin burn. Got him! Right? SPF eternity. Woo! <laughs> Those are so funny. But on a serious note, as Paul is referencing the light, you have to decide what light is he talking about. And I agree with one biblical commentator. This is kind of how I see it. it We're talking about the mission of God to bring light to the darkness. Here's what George Guthrie says. The apostle uses these twin images. God's giving creation's light and the light of recreation in his new eschatological age to speak of the dawning of light in the human heart through the gospel. I think he's referencing both, kind of the general giving of light, God's creation, but also the recreation. That's how he pictures God's salvation. Because again, it's nice to just generically say, oh, God wants to spread his love, but Paul here is very specific. What does God's mission look like? It's not to just generically spread it. It is to spread the knowledge of his son to the entire world. 
Yes, his light, his glory, but he defines his glory as his son, Jesus Christ, the exact representation of the glory of God. What is the purposes of God? What is his mission? Yes, to bring light to the darkness. Well, what does that specifically look like? To spread the knowledge of his son to this entire world. And it's nice to say God wants to bring light to the darkness out here. But Paul says the mission of God is also to bring light to the darkness in here inside of every human heart. It creation. The world was formless and void and he sent the sun. And how many people have experienced that recreation? That yes, it feels empty in here. Something feels missing. And the mission of God is to fill your heart and soul with the love of God through the great gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the mission of God. You have to understand. As you approach the Bible, we always are tempted to see it as a big rule book. The Bible's a nice self-help how-to book. That is so wrong. The Bible is the greatest novel ever written of the true story of Christ. It is an epic novel with the protagonist of Christ. It is not so you can just become a better person, become a better dad, drink less, smoke less, cuss less. It has moral implications. But a church that preaches simply morality misses the entire point of the scripture. The scripture is to tell the story of Jesus so that every human heart can experience the love of God flood into them through a life-changing relationship with God through Christ. One of my favorite discipleship appointments is taking somebody through the scriptures and instead of just thinking all the ways we're messed up, all the things we should do, they finally got it in their reading and he goes, oh my goodness, this whole thing is about Jesus. Yes, that is what his word is about because that is God's mission. So the world may know the love of Jesus, not generally out there, but in here personally for all of us. That's God's plan. Even as mothers, you raise your kids, it's not to get them to obey. Our goal for our parents is to get them to know Jesus. Do we parent that way? As we said, that is God's plan. But in God's great epic story, there's a clear hero and protagonist of Christ. But there's also clearly an antagonist of the Antichrist. And in the midst of God's plan, there is, in the midst of God's purposes, Satan also has a plan. And we see that in the middle of this passage. So what does it say about Satan's plan? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. If God's great purpose and mission is for all to see his light, his enemy's great mission is to veil as many human hearts from seeing and experiencing the love of God. The God of this world Most commentators agree that's a reference to Satan. And not that Satan is a God like God. You see, it's lowercase g, kind of a God of this world and created being in lesser power than God. But do you understand 
that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. Those around you that you love that don't know Christ, Satan and his demons are actively trying to blind them, veiling their minds and hearts from being able to experience God's love. I mean, do you understand in Paul's mind the depths of the spiritual battle we're in? And that's where I think that picture of blindness really comes into play. Paul knew that for someone to come to Christ, we don't need to argue them well. They need to experience the miracle of sight. For Paul, think about who's writing this. For Paul, that wasn't just a metaphor. Do you know what Paul's testimony was? Some of you are familiar with it. It's recorded in Acts 9. This wasn't a fun metaphor. Listen to Paul's story of coming to faith. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, that's Paul. Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. For Paul, it's not just a metaphor of spiritual blindness. He was literally blind and experienced the miracle of sight to see again, and he gave his life to Christ. Maybe you're a mom and you invited your kids and they didn't show up. And that could be frustrating. Is there people in your life that you wish they would come to know Jesus and you get frustrated with them that they're still walking in their sin? Do you wrestle with the fact that the enemy, that Satan, is blinding them so it is impossible for them to see Jesus without the gift of sight and faith? That's the picture of spiritual blindness. I want you to think about it. We haven't even gotten into our part that should affect our posture as we join God in his mission. So think of just physical blindness. Have you ever gotten really angry at someone who is blind because they couldn't see? If you have, you need counseling. Like serious, there's something wrong with you counseling, right? If somebody is blind, we show compassion. Maybe you pray for a miracle, but you don't get angry. Now, do you know somebody not walking with Christ? Do you get angry at him? If the picture is spiritual blindness and an an inability to see God, our posture should not be arguing in anger. It should be patience in prayer. Just as we would with somebody who is physically blind, that was how we would treat spiritual blindness. Patience, prayer. If you're going to be angry at somebody, be angry at Satan who is blinding the hearts and minds of those that you love to keep them from seeing Jesus. There's a spiritual battle raging on as God is trying to send out his love, hoping that all would see and experience his love through the knowledge of Christ. You want to know a big part of Satan's strategy? How he keeps people from experiencing the love of God. There's another commentator who I think has kind of a great word coming off this passage. Look at this. The devil is busy keeping sinners from opening their eyes. And he does so by keeping you from opening your mouth. Satan knows he can prevent sight if he can simply prevent speech. And how many of us is that true of? 
we cower and we kind of you know, shrink back from doing our part because of all the different things that discourage us. And if Satan can get just get us as Christians to not share the gospel, he can be the great enemy of God stopping his glorious love from moving forward. What is our part? That's actually very simple and plain in the midst of this passage. Let's read it again. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Do you want to find your purpose and join God in his great mission? Our part is so simple and easy. The open statement of truth. It's sharing the gospel with those that don't know Jesus. Are you doing your part that God calls us to? Our part in joining God's mission is to fill out as many of these little yellow ping pong balls as we can. Have you looked at that display out in the atrium? On mission, the goal of these, the yellow ones, is when you share the gospel, when you tell somebody about the hope of Jesus through the cross that he died on for their salvation. You write their name down when you share that with somebody and put it in that. Have you put anybody's name on this and dropped it in there yet? I don't even care if you take part in the display. But are you doing your part? Have you shared the good news of Christ with those that don't know him? Just an open, clear, bold statement of the truth. That's our job. And I know it's difficult. I think God knows that it's difficult as well. And I think that's where you see so many exhortations in there. Not disgraceful, not underhanded. Don't practice cunning. Don't tamper with God's word. Just clearly, boldly telling people how much God loves them, that he died for them, that they have walked away from God. Their life is a mess because of their sin, but they can experience forgiveness through the cross of Christ if they would put their faith in him. Man, have you done that? And how easy is it to tamper with God's word? That word... Actually, it comes from a term they would also use in making wine. And that's when they would water down the wine. That's how they would tamper with it. And how many churches, how many of us, in conversations with our coworkers, water down the message a little bit? We don't want it to be as potent. We don't want it to be as offensive. So we water it down a little bit. And there's so many things that's offensive. It's much easier to say, well, you believe whatever you want to believe. But this is what I believe. We kind of water it down so it's less offensive. There's a church not too far from here. This is on their website. Members of this church shall have the undisturbed right to follow the word of God according to the dictates of their own conscience. We're cunning. It's the same word used of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? All right, can, can God, can this really be the only truth? Is this really and how much easier is it to tamper with God's word, to allow, okay, you believe what you want. And you know what? In this culture right now, sin's offensive. Man, you can live however you want to live. So I don't want to talk about that. I want to offend anybody. So we can, again, that underhanded, it's kind of disguise, kind of keep things secretive. We don't want to talk about the judgment of sin because that's offensive. So we can kind of back off of that. And, you know, nobody likes that idea. And we continue to water down the message. 
I'm not saying that you don't have any tact. Of course, we want to be loving the way we present it, but we cannot tamper with God's word. We cannot water down the message. We can't hide the most offensive parts that we... Here's another one. Isn't it nice to say we're all children of God? You know what the Bible actually says? We're children of wrath. We are born because of our sin, apart from God, that God is a holy God, and we're so dark and messed up in here that we are born apart from God. But that's offensive, so we don't like to say that. But the truth is, because of my sin and selfishness, I was born that way, and I'm far from God, and I need to repent of living for self and turn to him. We cannot back away from the hard things. we got to be like my mom sometimes and drop truth bombs on people, you know? You know, she, she's not lying. I was getting a little chunky. I need to hear that. So as you're sharing the gospel, don't tell people they're getting chunky. Don't miss the point. That's not what I'm advocating. That'll go a really weird way. But don't shy away from the truth. This is on every email I send right now because I love this quote. Love uninformed by truth is unworthy to be called love. If, if I'm denying you truth, I am not loving you. Now, I want to say it in a loving way, but I need to give the truth an open statement of the truth, not watering it down, not softening it to make it more palatable, just boldly and clearly sharing the tenets of the gospel. That is our job. And he says, don't lose heart. Again, I think God knows our temptation. And you could probably translate that in context. Don't cower. How many of us have been in that situation where you want to share your faith, but you cower back? You allow Satan to win in that moment by keeping your mouth shut and not sharing the good news of Jesus. We all feel it. I mean, I feel it as a pastor, right? I don't want to come across as a Bible thumper. I don't want them to reject this. But I think part of in this passage, we see some things that help us to not lose heart. That's his encouragement. Lean in, do your part. What is one of the ways... They keep us, right? Well, what if they reject it? Paul knew people would reject it. They were accusing Paul of that. They said, look how many people turn away. And what did Paul say? Look, those that are veiled, those that are rejecting this are the ones that are perishing. Just because people might reject it doesn't mean you don't share it. I love this quote. The sun does not cease to be the sun, although the blind do not see it. Just because people reject it doesn't make it not true and doesn't mean we shouldn't share it. Assume people will reject it. Like if every time you shared your faith with somebody, you're like, hey, do you want to come to know Jesus? They were like, yes. Can I get baptized too? Well, sure you can. Like we know that doesn't always happen. It's not always as, it's almost never as scary as you think it is either. But just because not everyone will accept it doesn't mean We don't share it. We still do our part. And we confuse it, I think, with God's part. It's our job to save them. I can't cure blindness. I can only do my part. Paul saw the issue. He said, it's not in me sharing it or sharing it charismatically enough. It's that they can't see. I think we get confused on what the issue is. The issue is not not your lack of ability in sharing the gospel. The issue is their inability to receive the gospel. That's how Paul saw it. 
Stop putting so much pressure on yourself. I can't convince them. Of course you can't. That's not the point. Stop worrying so much about, oh, it's clunky. I don't share it well or, or I'm awkward. How much, how many times am I more concerned about not feeling awkward for five minutes than your eternity? And I'm putting so much pressure on myself that I need to say this in a way that's going to convince somebody. Paul knew it's not about me. My job is to share. It's God's job to bring the gift of faith. Release yourself of taking on God's part and just do your part. Of course you can't save them. John Piper spoke into this very well. Don't stop because you can't. Of course you can't. But the fact that you can't make electricity or create light never stops you from flipping light switches. So don't let the fact that you can't cause new birth stop you from telling the gospel. What should we do to help people be born again? The biblical answer was plain. Tell people the good news from a heart of love and a life of service. Are you doing your part? Are you denying people the opportunity to experience the hope of Christ? Plainly sharing the truth of Scripture. And don't think, oh, just because you're a pastor, this is easy for you. Paul needs to encourage everybody, don't lose heart. Don't cower back. Because, you know, I'll be frank. This is kind of easy for me to share the gospel plainly up here. You know what else is true? I've lived in my house 10 years, and I've never shared the gospel with either of my neighbors. The first weeks we move in, we're outside, like, taking care of the lawn. Neighbor finds out, you're from the church. He's like, don't you be one of them Bible thumpers on me. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Can I still cut my lawn? I don't know. And I allowed that to cower again. You got to use tact. If somebody's pushing you away, you don't force it down their throats. But by the end of this year, I'm writing my neighbor's name on this and putting it in that bin because I am not going to miss out on joining God in his mission, seeing his redemption move forward in someone's life because I'm too chicken to, sh- to share the gospel. We all feel it. I feel it as a pastor with my neighbors. Oh, is this going to be weird? How do I bring it up? They're going to stop. Don't lose heart. Even the greatest of evangelists can be tempted to lose heart. If I were to ask you, who's the greatest evangelism? Maybe in history, but in American history, I'm sure almost everybody would say this guy, right? Shared the gospel to over two billion people. There's a great story about how even Billy Graham is tempted to, to lose heart. In 1955, he was invited to speak over at Cambridge. And here it is. I mean, this is the highest echelons of academia. And then he was invited. And as he's invited, the the papers, the London Times got word of it. And kind of word starts to spread and buzz that the famous American evangelist is coming over. All the professors of Cambridge come out. All of the highest society of academia are going to come out and hear Billy Graham And Billy gets intimidated. He spends time preparing. And he's not going to look dumb. And he's going to wow them with his smarts. And so he writes these talks. And he's going to quote philosophers and philosophies. Because he's not going to look dumb. And he's going to impress them with his academic prowess. And that's how he goes in. Because he gets nervous. Because he knows that they're going to reject just the plain gospel. you got to say it fancy. And so for days he comes and he preaches. And you know what happens? Nothing. (sighs) 
Billy knew what happened. He forgot his part was to just plainly share the gospel and he tried impressing people. I feel that. Even now in this message, I'm like, it's Mother's Day. It's too dry. It's not funny enough. I haven't enough movie quotes in here and I got to make it compelling enough. That's not my job. My job is to plainly tell you about God's love for you. Billy Graham forgot his job. He wrote all these fancy talks until it got to Wednesday night. He was convicted. He scrapped all of his talks that he was going to say with all his fancy philosophers. And here's an eyewitness account what happened that Wednesday night. Someone in the crowd writes, I'll never forget that night. I was in the totally packed church, sitting on the floor with the professor of divinity sitting on the one side and the chaplain of the college who was a future bishop on the other. Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So dear Billy got up that night. He began in Genesis and went through the whole Bible and he talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all over the place for 45 minutes. And both of my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women came forward. Billy Graham is not famous for being the greatest preacher. It's for openly, clearly, and boldly sharing the good news of Jesus that I wrecked my life because I was born apart from God because I am selfish and I don't want to sound fire and brimstone, but I can't deny you the truth, the plain truth that we are far from God, but he died for us to pay the penalty for our sin. And if God is giving you the gift of faith, if you would put your faith in him, you can experience salvation. Are you doing your part, sharing that good news? The take-home application is so simple. Join God in his mission. And it's not our job to save people, but it is our mission to share the good news of Jesus. Do your part, and I want to do mine, but I do want to say, The other take-home application, if you have never done that, if you've never experienced the love of God flood into your empty soul, into your darkness and your sin, I want to invite you to that now. I want, like Billy Graham did to so many, to give you that invitation. I was just recently, this last membership class, reading through our testimonies, and it was kind of fun as it tied into here As we're kind of closing this time, I want to read you one testimony of someone in our church because maybe you can relate to this. I felt a yearning and longing for something that I could not name. I felt empty and lonely. I struggled with poor self-image, never feeling like I was enough and wondering why I existed. I felt worthless. By the time I was 18, I was anorexic and depressed. I was flipping through the channels on the TV. I ran across Billy Graham preaching a sermon, and I felt compelled to stop and listen. When he began stating that we were all sinners, and only Jesus could save us from our sins, I began to weep. 
When he said, Jesus died for our sins willingly, was buried and rose again for me so that I could have eternal life, I realized the yearning that I had been carrying in my heart for as long as I could remember now had a name, Jesus. That day in my living room, I repeated that prayer Billy Graham provided, repented of my sins and accepted Jesus as my Savior. If you are experiencing that emptiness, looking for that purpose for which you were created, if you're looking for the love of God, God desperately loves you and longs to fill you with his love. If you would only repent and put your faith in Christ. And as I close in prayer, I want to close just by reading the prayer that Billy Graham prayed so often. If you're in that place, there's no magic in this, but if you're ready to put your faith in him, would you just, as I read this, pray this in your heart, and experience God's love moving in your life, and then I will close in prayer. If you're ready, just repeat this in your own heart. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin, and that you raised him to life. I want to trust him as my savior, and follow him as Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me to do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Can we all bow our heads? Father, for whoever it is that have prayed that prayer for the first time, I ask that your spirit would flood in to that emptiness, that void, that darkness. Fill it with your love and your light. God, thank you for that good news, that gospel, the salvation that we can have in Christ. And for those of us that know you, would we not cower back in fear? Would we join you on your glorious mission of spreading your love and the glory of Christ to all in this world? God, would we do our part and share that good news, trusting that you will do yours and bring hope and healing to this world. In Jesus' name. Amen.